Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Praying Christian Women podcast. I'm Jamie Hampton, and today is just a, a special honor and privilege to get to be here with New York Times bestselling author Ellen Vaughn to particularly discuss her two-volume biography about one of my personal um heroes of the faith, spiritual mother, I, I would even go so far as to say Elizabeth Elliot in, in these two volumes called Becoming Elizabeth Elliot and her most recent release, Being Elizabeth Elliot. So Ellen, thank you so much for being here to talk with us. Thank you, Jamie. I'm, I'm happy to be with you. Well, before we get started talking, I have, I told you I could, I could be here for hours just talking to you <laughs> about your experience, but um. But uh, we like to ask all of our guests what your favorite prayer closet is, and that being in air quotes, where where do you love to go to meet with God? You know, for me, I love when the weather is good, going out on my deck, and there's something about being out there, and the air is cool and fresh, and there are some there's a wooded area behind my house, and so. That for me is very conducive to focusing on who God is and uh, on his word. Uh, the other place is really where I'm sitting right now. And that is in my bedroom <laughs> uh, with the, the books and the, um, you know, just uh, stuff around the uh, journals and, and the things that uh, are really conducive, the privacy to uh, connect in my terms of prayer and you know, you have to slow yourself down so mindfully to really eliminate the distractions and to be in the word and, and have that sense of openness to what the Holy Spirit would be saying. Absolutely. And I'm yeah. curious, you know, you wrote these two volumes, just spent, I don't even know how many countless hours pouring over the mm -hmm. journals of Elizabeth Elliot. Um, are you so you are a journaler yourself also? Yes, I'm kind of sporadic, and it is so uh, one of the the best things about uh, being able to do these books was to immerse myself in Elizabeth's journals because they revealed that she's like us, right? And yeah. so she struggles with insecurities, and in her journal, she pours forth the laments, the things that she did not do in public. She, unlike me, was a very reserved person. So in the journals, you see the, the pouring out of her heart. And so I think for me, I've always been a journaler uh, in terms of, of there's something about putting things in words on paper, the concreteness of that, that helps me to clarify what it even is I might be thinking. And also, I find that I forget so much that the journal is helpful to remind me of just the the Ebenezer's of God's faithfulness in the past and the way that he has so blessed in times that are difficult because that gives encouragement uh, in the day by day. So in my journals, in Elizabeth's journals, sometimes there's one place where uh, I've forgotten what year it was, but she's like, why do I do these journals? I'm just going to stop. And so there's about a three month break of silence, you know, three and whole months, <laughs> three months. And then it's like she just she comes back. Her handwriting is flowing, flowing. And back she is. And she said, well, this isn't going to be useful to anybody else, but it helps me. And but you don't know. Go ahead. You don't know. She didn't know that. Yeah. Yes, journals, in fact, would be useful to others. There are a few other places where she would say, I pity the poor biographer who has to dig through these things. 
What so, a connection moment, you know, for yeah, you to yeah. be like, I made it into her journals. That's right. I'm like, here I am. You know? So do you think she intended for, I mean, did she specifically make it known all of this is, is just to be used? I mean, it sounds like that's kind of an indirect permission saying, well, the biographer that'll go through these. So she knew that these journals would eventually be seen by everyone. Cause I'm just thinking of myself and how terrified I would be at times. I've destroyed journals. I've ripped pages out because, and she obviously did too. You mentioned that there were pages missing yeah. yes. either by, from her or maybe someone after that, that did not want those things being known. But, um, but yeah, did she, do you think she knew that these would be for all to see at some point? Well, a, they're not for all to see, but that's a good point. Very good and point. So there, there were things in the journals that I felt were too private to include in the books, uh, and so there, I had no need to be salacious or to try to show really private things. I wanted to include the things that helped to advance the story and the reader's understanding of uh, this this very marvelous woman's journey. Right? I think maybe in her later years. There had been a lot of talk about uh, a biography of Elizabeth Elliot. So I think that's where she had it in her mind. Yes, perhaps one day there will be a poor writer who will come along and, and read these things. But you're right. Some things she clearly um, cut out. And some things when she would cross things out, which was rare, her, her thoughts just flowed beautifully. But if there was something that was too private, I can tell where she went and she just, you know, took it out so it could not be uh, seen. Yeah. Well, I just feel like I, I think of journaling as an untangling. It's almost like as yeah. the lines make their way across the paper, it's like the threads of your thoughts just kind of get unraveled on the paper. Yeah. And it's like, oh, this becomes so much more clear. Um, yeah. And I was, I was so disappointed when I read the part in the book where she said, I'm not going to journal anymore. And I thought, well, what's, what's Ellen going to do now? Like, where's yeah, she going to yeah. get the in? Are we just going to have to get information from hearsay? And then I was so relieved when she picked back up a few months later. <laughs> right. Exactly. And what I mentioned earlier, I think is really good too, because sometimes Elizabeth Elliot was so cerebral, so sure in her communication skills, which were immense, so grounded in the scriptures and in her theology, that she comes across as, as a superwoman who was so clear that she could never possibly need to be untangled, like you just mentioned, you know? And yet in her journals, as I said, there's the lament, there are the things where she's just pouring out to God and there's no neat, tidy answer in those pages. But it's like the psalmist pouring out one's heart before God and knowing, even if we can't figure out what in the world he's up to, we still know that he is real. He is holding us. He is the rock that will not move. And so I loved, again, the vulnerability I saw in her journals, the, the sense of connecting with another human being's journey with whom I could relate because I couldn't relate to Superwoman, right? <laughs> well, I just... um you just did a beautiful job of stewarding the story. I just, I feel like what, what came out was so well done and, and just, you know, um, I just can't imagine the kind of responsibility it is to be given all of her things, like you said, and some of those, it was your choice not to put in, you got to, to choose 
Um, and so I just think that that is, and I loved hearing about that process a little bit. You did share in the books how that felt for you. And you described sitting by the tombstone and contemplating and, you know, can you tell that, can you just tell that anecdote of, of when you were not sure how to, how to write this story and, and you were it's in right. the cemetery. And, and you're so right, Jamie. I mean, it's, it's a heavy stewardship to try to tell another human being's story. And I so appreciated that the family and the Elizabeth Elliott foundation, really gave the the stewardship of this project to me. And, and it's an authorized biography in that sense that I uniquely had all those journals and mm-hmm. have been given the family's um, blessing and resources of all of the papers to do the book. But in no way was it sort of like, and we're going to tell you what to write or we're going to have to approve everything you write. They were most gracious. So the responsibility, uh, as with every book, you know, it was on me to to write what I believe God was was wanting me to put forth for the the benefit of others. And um, so when I first came into the project, I I kind of, you know, I admired Elizabeth Elliot. I knew some things about her. I had met her. I had heard her speak. But but she, again, was sort of a remote figure in the distance. And then as I, I waded through all of these papers and journals, and as I talked to family members and her closest friends, I began to hear stories that I wasn't aware of. I began to hear things that that didn't fit neatly into my expectations, perhaps. And so I was uh, somewhat miserable at the time with the responsibility of all of that. Oh, Lord, how do I be a steward of all this this uh, these things that I have, I'm now aware of. And so I went to Elizabeth's uh, gravestone. I was in Massachusetts where she had lived in her final years. Beautiful, beautiful place, an old cemetery. And I love old cemeteries. I love walking among the gravestones and thinking of the stories of all of those people and what their lives were like. These And near the back of the cemetery is this uh, kind of carved... It, irregular large stone and Elizabeth Elliot is buried there with her second husband Addison Leach and I I it was a gorgeous day and the sun is kind of filtering through the trees and American flags are flying and and I just sat down with my back against the stone and I I was just kind of one of those moments of prayer I wasn't in a prayer closet but uh, just praying oh Lord show me how to tell this story show me, I can't do this. How do you want me to tell it? And then listening, and I didn't hear an audible response from God. Elizabeth Elliot didn't respond to me from underneath the stone. And so I, I, I got up, and then a few feet away from me, facing me, was the back of a gravestone. And I do not know why. I went over, I, I pulled back the long grass that was obscuring the bottom of the stone, and what was carved there read the truth in love. Mm. And I thought, that's it. That's it. Lord, show me how to, to spin this tale, show this story as best I can as a flawed human being, this story about another flawed human being, uh, to tell the truth in love. So that became my, my guiding thought as I went through material that was both sensitive and surprising, and some of which contributed to the narrative arc of the story, and some maybe that did not and did not need to be shared. 
Yeah. Well, I, I felt that I sensed that through mm-hmm. these volumes that, um, you know, your high regard for her always came mm-hmm. through. Um, even though there were some very shocking things that were like, wow, I never knew this, never would have thought this. Mm-hmm. And even not so shocking, just surprising uh, mm-hmm. that, that she was human, because like you said, some, the way that she presented herself, the way, you know, the Elizabeth Elliot that, that guided me through some of my early days of faith and of, of, you know, reading passion and purity and through gates of splendor and being kind of a, a new Christian with the kind of naive, uh, outlook on life. Um, I, I saw her as a solid, unmovable kind of, okay. Yeah. The theology is solid. This is, this is the way it is. And reading your biography, it became apparent that she was not a fan of tidy bows and, and neat (laughs) endings. And I love that about her. And it is so freeing to see that side of her. Um, So what would you say, what would you say were some of your favorite surprising revelations about who Elizabeth Elliot was Mm -hmm. through your research? Oh, I would like to flip that and ask you that, but I will respond to one. And that is that, um, and I knew this because of the work I had done in volume one, which is the earlier years of her life. But Mm -hmm. uh, when uh, this book, Being Elizabeth Elliot, it covers kind of her middle years. And to me, it's my favorite period of her life. Uh, because she comes back from from her years in Ecuador and all of the incredible unexpected things that happened to her there, like the martyrdom of her beloved husband and her living in the jungle among the tribal people who killed her husband and and stories that are bigger than life, right? And she comes back to the U.S. and she is settling in to be a writer, And this is a serious business to be a writer, right? And so she's reading literature. She's, And what I love about her in that season is she had previously, she had grown up in a pretty legalistic environment. When she was a young idealistic missionary, it uh, it was very structured of here is what Christians do. Here are the the answers that we give to certain situations. Here is how stories are told. So they always have a victorious, happy ending and everyone came to faith in Jesus. And she became really in the 1960s when America was going through quite a revolution on the streets and it was a time of great rebellion. Elizabeth was a rebel too. Now that's not a word anybody, you know, it ties with Elizabeth Elliot, but but she wasn't questioning her faith in Almighty God or the, the truth of his word. She was questioning what is the gospel and what are the cultural overlays that we kind of put on the gospel? What are the religious additions that we put on it? And I think that's an enormously useful question for all of us today. We live in a fractured culture, polarization. Uh, many have a caricature of Christianity. And I think it's important for followers of Jesus today to to think carefully and critically about how to to, uh, be with with the love of Jesus in a hostile culture and to to, uh, preach the gospel all the time using words as necessary, as St. Francis said. So 
So I like this period of Elizabeth's life. She also wanted to take some risks in her writing. She wanted to try new things. She wrote a novel that was uh, not particularly well received by many in the Christian market because maybe a lot of people didn't understand really what she was doing in it. Uh, I think it, it's a period that where I could really relate with Elizabeth. Some of her later books, I personally, I know they've helped so many, and and but just for me, I can't relate as much with that voice because it does seem more like everything fits together. And the Elizabeth of this middle section of her life is asking questions. She's she's reading omnivorously all different kinds of literature. She's she's uh, she's exploring, and she has the same adventurous spirit she had in Ecuador, but uh, she's also asking, I think, healthy questions for believers to ask. And she's hungry for like-minded people. And so the other thing that I think isn't well known that was a surprise to me, I don't know if it was to you, but I didn't know anything about the great love story in the middle of her life when she fell passionately, wildly, surprisingly in love with Addison Leach. And you could not find a more different courtship than her very careful courtship with Jim Elliott that she wrote about in Passion and Purity. Exactly. No, that was a huge surprise to me. I knew that she had been married three times, but that was all I knew. I, I had no idea. And one of the big surprises to me was here's Elizabeth Elliott. I think she revealed a little bit of her passion and her sexuality in her courtship with Jim. Like she didn't um, she didn't hold back from the fact that she was a passionate woman and had desires, mm -hmm. but she didn't I, reading these books about her life. She was very comfortable in her body. She sunbathed mm -hmm. nude and, and skinny dipped and she right. spoke very freely in her journals about sex and about her desires and not wanting to be single. On one hand, I think as Christian women, we feel like we have to be prudes or mm -hmm. we're not holy. And, and seeing that side of her is, and, mm -hmm. and she wasn't apologetic about that side of her either. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like she tried to hide it. And so I just thought that was very enlightening and freeing as well to see that she, she was able to kind of hold these two sides of herself in mm -hmm. balance, or I don't know, maybe she struggled mm -hmm. on, on one end or the other, but it mm -hmm. just felt very freeing to hear that, see that side of her expressed. Right, right. And I think she did when she was uh, shockingly and horrifically widowed the second time. You know, when she was widowed the first time, Jim's death was a shock, but she, like other missionaries of her day, was familiar with martyrdom. And so maybe there was not the surprise as much. And, and Jim's death was quick. And with Addison's death, Elizabeth had been so in love with this man and in a marriage. I think it was one of the happiest periods of her, her life. And then for that to slowly erode as bit by bit by bit, his cancer metastasizes and he is, is shrunken and suffering and taken away from her slowly. That, I think was the hardest loss of Elizabeth Elliot's life. And she had many losses of all different kinds. 
And the book explores those things, because I think if we're realistic, all of us relate with loss, both large and small. It's part of life. And so I think we can profit from Elizabeth's experiences of loss. And really, in the aftermath, as as you referred to, in uh, the aftermath of the death of her second husband, she was very lonely and she was struggling with with desires. And and certainly we know that Elizabeth was a woman of steely obedience. She was going to be chased. All right. But she's very matter of fact about her struggles. And I did find that refreshing. Yeah, because we don't talk about that. You know, single women don't talk about that. And and I think it's becoming more to talk. And I think that's a good thing. Um, I I wanted to touch a little bit on that novel that she wrote because Mm -hmm. I that was another thing. I didn't know it existed. I Mm -hmm. did not. I haven't read it, but I read about it. And you I think you I I think you talked a little bit about it and some of the plot. Mm hmm. But um, can you tell us about that novel and what it was about, where that came from, and why people didn't like it? It was banned, you said, in some bookstores because Christians didn't like the message. So can you talk a little about that? Right, right. And it certainly wasn't banned for salacious material, but some bookstores didn't carry it because they felt it did not reflect well on the lives of missionaries. One reader wrote to Elizabeth that she was very disappointed because she considers missionaries superior in every respect. And the <laughs> Elizabeth's protagonist is a young female missionary in Ecuador. Sounds familiar. And, um, and she goes through great loss and has entered into the mission field thinking that she will go serve God victoriously and souls will come to be saved and she'll be bringing in the sheaves and, and uh, that, that God will bless her work because she's doing it to his glory. And then the journey of the protagonist in Elizabeth's novel, which is called No Graven Image, the protagonist encounters loss of all kinds and she's so confused lord why would you allow these these failures these twists and turns that are so awful when it's all in your service and so she becomes a a person who deals with the issues of real life that we all face but that weren't written about at the time by people who had a view of the tidy victorious always Uh, with a happy ending stories of the Christian life. And the reason the book is titled No Graven Image is because Elizabeth was writing a story that showed how easily we all have graven images in our own lives. We make idols out of elements of our faith. We, and, and I feel like this is really important, we do it in our own day. We put Christian heroes on pedestals. And Elizabeth, of course, said pedestals are for statues. They're not for flesh and blood people. She would be horrified that some might consider her this great hero of the faith who had it all together and, and, and that that notion of making our heroes into graven images, into idols, and following the human hero is, is in fact, a form of of raising up graven images. 
And so I, I think I said in the book, and I felt so clearly the message of Elizabeth's novel, the message I tried to convey through the story of her life is that, that the only hero who, who does not disappoint us is Jesus Christ. And the tendency in evangelicalism to, to lift up celebrities or our Christian celebrities is in fact, it's, it's a, it's a copy of what happens in the world and it is doomed in terms of our expectations. How many of our heroes have, have fallen in recent years. And I think it cripples the, the power and the witness of, of believers everywhere. So I wanted this book to, as I just said, to um, to continue to illustrate that passion of Elizabeth's. Let's not lift up human beings. Let's lift up Jesus. Right. And let's not apologize for God like he needs our help. You know, yes. I. Yes. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I feel like the the idea one, I think one of the idols that I'm guilty of, too, is elevating my will. Calling it God's will. And then yeah. being surprised when it doesn't come to pass. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to download the new Bumble now. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think, too, probably when Elizabeth was a younger woman, she thought that if we know enough scripture and enough theology, um, we can pretty much list out the attributes of God and what he is doing. And there is a cause and effect in in the walk of faith. And I think as an older woman, she began to to recognize this impenetrable mystery of God's will, how he allows suffering, how he allows, lo allows loss, and how when we as, as human beings make mistakes, he still will work through those mistakes. And I think he did that in Elizabeth's life. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you talk about how much she would not have loved to be put on a pedestal and I just feel like your presentation of her story for me, because I, I will say that I, I definitely, especially as a young adult, put her on a pedestal and just this uh, reading this has really helped, um, helped me love her more because mm. I can see her as, you know, a sister in Christ instead of this you know, this idol or, you know, not, not necessarily an idol, but this, you know, person that's high up and unapproachable. Um, and I think people that knew her, you mentioned in many times that even people that knew her in person, there were only a select few that kind of got through the, the kind of quiet, maybe exterior. That just brings me to what words would you use to describe Elizabeth Elliot? Well, um, 
that's a daunting thing because I know Elizabeth would not want me to choose words to describe her. Hmm. I think there's, you know, a famous anecdote. Someone came up to her like a reporter and said, who's the real uh, Elizabeth Elliot? And she responded, God help us if we ever find her, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, hmm. but uh, I think certainly, um, Elizabeth was a, a person in in process. And I think that she did have, um, she loved her friends. She loved her family. She loved to laugh and eat a great meal and listen to great music. And she, she loved with great zest life. But she also, in social situations, could be a bit awkward. I, so many people, her friends and people who just met her in passing, uh, have told me of encounters with Elizabeth where she was uh, a bit rude, where she did not engage, where she uh, was seemed cold or standoffish. And so she did have have that reputation with her closest friends, the people who could who broke through and and really were trusted in her circle. Of course, she had great, great confidences and uh, an intimacy of of relationship. But in public, she could seem to be a cold fish. She could seem to be that, again, that austere person on the platform who whose words flowed forth incredibly well, but then was not a person you'd want, you could really relate to, sit down afterwards and have a cup of tea. And I think that often on, I included in the book where she would be speaking to a group of a thousand women or, or whatever it was and be the woman on the platform, but feel very lonely. Who really knows me? Am I a commodity? Am I just sort of an image myself? Am I really known? And I think that's a basic human feeling. And that's why God created us to be in community. We need close friends. We need the church community, or uh, we we can isolate. Yeah, and she did seem to find those people, though you know, to find those kindred spirits, to find the people, and those people. It seems that she went very deep with and <laughs> and enjoyed sharing everything. You know, sharing a lot with those people and and <laughs> deep conversations and theological debates. <laughs> Yeah. Well, now that you've gone through writing both volumes of her biography, what are what would you say are some key changes that you have seen in her in her thinking, her theology, her beliefs that kind of as she evolved? And what are some things that were constant that never changed? Right. And I think I've alluded to some of those things. Mm -hmm. The main transition in Elizabeth was from that um tidy idealism to a sense of of the mystery of God and the messiness of life and the fact that the question why is pretty irrelevant. Uh, and one thing that never changed in her is whether in the early years of her life or at the end of her life, she was always a person who was clearly governed not by how she felt, her emotions, her identity, her self-esteem, anything like that. She was governed by how do I obey God in this situation? Mm -hmm. Lord, what do you want me to do? If you want me to do anything about the Waodani, 
the tribal people who killed her husband. I'm available. That's the prayer she prayed when she was a 28-year-old widow. All through her life, Lord, if you want me to do anything in regard to whatever situation it was, I'm available. And I think that's a great transferable truth for us all. And what I like about her is that she didn't seem to think, I'll be available once I get my act together, or I'll be available once I get done with something else. No, she she had a sense of obedience to Christ and being available whenever. So I take that away. I think it was that was consistent throughout her long life. So you had said in the book that there was a, a whole section of journals that you did not get copies of, or you did not you did not get to see. Um, did you see any of her writing while she was suffering from memory loss and the beginnings of dementia? Well, I think I I saw all the journals that exist. Okay, but sadly, some, some had some been of- destroyed. Some were destroyed, and I write about that briefly in the yeah. book. That's that's sad. Uh, but her later journals, which I did not use for volume two, because volume two, I, I didn't choose to go into her later years, because most of her later years were uh, a season where she was writing books and speaking, and that doesn't necessarily make a great story. <laughs> right. And all those books are available to whomever would want to access them. Mm-hmm. And it was a season of her life that was very complex because of uh, some of the challenges in her third marriage. Uh, when she began to develop signs of, of dementia and began to lose the incredible intellectual uh, faculty and and Uh, access and and verbal brilliance that had characterized her all her life. Uh, The journals are begin to die out about that period. Mm -hmm. And you can see where her writing was once strong and flowing across the page. Now it's tentative and shaky. And it is a, a sad reminder that all of us face if you get old enough which is how how as age comes we diminish and so she greeted the news according to her closest friend she greeted the news of her her the diagnosis of of alzheimer's with the same grace and acceptance that she had accepted every difficult suffering that had come into her life so yeah. That's a a hard journey. And in the end of this book, volume two, being Elizabeth Elliot, I kind of do an overview of the rest of her life. But in my stewardship of the story, I thought it best to bring bring the book to a close before she entered into those years. Yeah, it, it would be so much of the hallmark of these books is Elizabeth's own words, her own descriptions of her inner journey. And um, I think the words of others are helpful, of course. And I did many interviews of those who loved her and were with her. But I I wanted to retain the distinctive of her own voice. Yeah, definitely. You had mentioned in the book briefly that developing dementia was one of her biggest fears. Is that something that she expressed to people? I And you said something, I think, about her mother. Did her mother also 
have yeah. something. Yes, yeah. I mean, certainly um, many of our families are touched by dementia, right? Yeah. And uh, Or memory loss. Mm -hmm. And so because Elizabeth had such a prodigious and stunning memory, I think she yeah. feared that, that loss uh, uniquely. And her, her brother, Tom, her sister, Ginny, both developed dementia. So mm. I think that she she was familiar with what that journey could look like. Yeah. And it's, it was it's a fear, of course. Of course. But, yeah. Yes. It's not something that anybody wants to face. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, well, I also wanted to know... Um, just from you personally, um, what was it like for you writing this story um, while, as you share in the story, you were at the same time, um, you know, Elizabeth was caring for her husband, Addison, as he mm -hmm. battled cancer. And you, during the same exact time, were caring for your husband, who was undergoing this a similar battle. Um, so what was it like for you to do that? You, you expressed some of that in the book, um, mm -hmm. but did it bring you comfort or make it more painful or a little bit of both at different times? I guess it would be hard to judge. Um, but for me, the, the way that it unfolded was just uncanny to me because yeah. I had written, as I say in the book, I had written the section about Addison Leach's death. And, mm. and those journals are beautiful and poignant and awful. And, and so in order to try to write someone else's story, you have to put on their experience, right? And, and so I had tried through Elizabeth's journals to, to understand what it felt like and to put it on the page of, of an experience I had not yet had. And within, I've forgotten now, but probably two or three days of finishing that material, that section of Elizabeth Elliot's story, my own husband was rushed to the emergency room and he had an inoperable, malignant, aggressive brain tumor that in fact would take his life. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, I shoved the manuscript and everything else aside and and. Uh, my husband uh, was at home. We had hospice care come in. And within just a few weeks, um, our adult kids and spouses and, and friends and church community, everyone, we wanted to do Lee's death in community, if you will. And within just a few weeks, he passed away. And it it was one of those interactions in my of my professional life of being a writer and my personal life of being a person where it all kind of intermingled. My goodness, I did not want to be in the same club with Elizabeth Elliot, right? Of, <laughs> and uh, I felt like, though, every time I write a book, and I've written two dozen books at this point, it's always kind of an organic process. The Holy Spirit is teaching me as I'm engaging and trying to tell a story for the benefit of readers. And I felt in that intermingling of life and art, if you will, uh, this kinship with Elizabeth, this deeper understanding of her own suffering. And I felt really such a great encouragement of God's gifts of grace, which were enormous. 
in in the face of my own husband's quick death. Yeah. I felt peace. Well, I'm so glad. And, and I really appreciated just hearing you um, interject your personal experiences mm -hmm. through kind of the end of the second volume, because oh, it really oh, did. It was, it was really, um, I don't know. I just really enjoyed being able to connect with you in that way as well, you know, as her biographer. So well, I appreciate that, Jamie. that. Thank you. Because I, I wondered, I felt like, well, you know, I'm, I'm just the biographer, but at that point, I also felt like, oh, my goodness, it's it's no mistake that God would allow me this this um, challenge at the same time. And I could not help but weave it in to yeah. the end of Elizabeth's story. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, if Elizabeth was alive today, are there questions that you would ask her that are unanswered, even after kind of getting a glimpse into her, the recesses of her mind, you know, do you yeah. have, are, are, what are, what are the top maybe one to three questions <laughs> that you would ask? You know, I, I don't mean to be coy, but I think the questions I would ask Elizabeth are ones uh, I would reserve only for Elizabeth. <laughs> I get that. I, I totally share, get that. Share them broadly. That's okay. So yeah, it's the maybe things that didn't make it into the two volumes. <laughs> or, right. Yeah. yeah. But, but you know, what, we all get to heaven. I don't think any of the questions I have now are going to be on my mind, right? <laughs> I doubt that. And But this is what I love about what you have done with her story is you have just, um, it reveals her humanity um, to the point where it just accentuates the amazing woman that she was. And so I'm just so thankful that you were the one given the privilege and, and the, you know, uh, privilege, I guess, or maybe burden at times of, of stewarding this story because you did an amazing job and made one of my absolutely favorite, um, women of the faith, just very real and accessible to me. So thank you. Thank you. You know, bottom line, any of our human stories are stories of the grace of God. Yeah. You know, and Elizabeth herself pointed out, if you read the Bible, some of the human beings who are the great heroes of the Bible are a mess. You know, they yeah. make ridiculous mistakes. They're sometimes they're cowardly. They're, they're, um, it just mistakes of all kinds, shall we say mm -hmm. the Bible would not be a great Hallmark movie. Okay. Mm -hmm. But that's the, that's the beauty of it. it is that it is the grace of God working in the broken lives of ordinary men and women using the, the strengths and talents that he gives us gave Elizabeth Elliot in abundance, but the focus is not on Elizabeth Elliot. It is on here's the life of this person who by the grace of God is alive today as we speak, even though she is no longer living on this planet. Yeah. It's a, that's, that gives me hope. Well, and her journals and, and just the portrayal of who she was are really a love story between her and God. I mean, just exactly. her pouring her heart out to him for everything and trusting yeah. him and lamenting yeah. with him and inviting him into every corner of her life. And that that's a beautiful example. Yes, I agree. 
well, what is next for you? What are, what are your next projects going to look like? And and where can our listeners find you and connect with you? Well, uh, I have a, a website I, I rarely keep up called ellenvon.com. And that should have links to books I've done in the past. And, and uh, I occasionally appear on social media, but I do a horrible job with that, about which I worry all the time. And, um, you know, after the heavy lifting of these Elizabeth Elliott books, I'm doing something different. I serve on the board of a wonderful ministry called International Cooperating Ministries, ICM, which works in uh, cooperation with indigenous Christian leaders in a hundred countries around the world. So I'm writing a book about uh, what God is doing in some places that are very hostile to Christianity. I've been able to travel to India and to Nepal. I was just in Rwanda and South Africa. I'm going to go to Ukraine. And in those places, just the stories of ordinary men and women, Christians, who are, are being salt and light in the midst of some, some difficult places. So that's what I'm working on now. And after that, I will do the authorized biography of an incredibly wonderful person. I will leave it at that. I can't wait. Can't wait. Well, I will stay in touch so we can yes, have you back would. on because I can't wait to see what you do next. I so appreciate oh. you being here today to talk with us about this. Thank you. I want to know the questions you didn't ask. Maybe we'll talk offline. Okay. <laughs> they're, they're not too many. We got through most of them, I think. Okay. Well, <laughs> thank right. you. Well, thank you. And how can we pray for you today? I'm going to close this out in prayer. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I, it's appropriate from um, praying Christian women. <laughs> That's I, not an accident. <laughs> well planned. Uh, yeah, I'm in a season that is pretty challenging in terms of a lot of wonderful opportunities and travel and speaking and um, all kinds of things. And I want to um, pray that um, I be faithful to the opportunities God gives me, mm-hmm. that I get out of the way, that um, his grace shine forth, and that he would um, use me for his purposes, for his glory. Absolutely. That, that's general, but it's a prayer that is just, it's necessary. Yes. All right, Ellen, thank you again for being here. And yeah, we'll be on the lookout for for your new things. And, and we will definitely continue to pray for you and your travels and in your, in your work ahead. Well, thank you. The Lord bless you and keep you. All right. Well, let's pray. God, we just thank you so much for this time with Ellen. Um, We just, we thank you for the life of Elizabeth Elliot. We thank you for her humanity, for the fact that, um, that you answered Ellen's prayer for how to steward this story, how to write it um, with with such an immediate and obvious um, answer. And we just thank you that that you gave her everything that she needed to fulfill that, to share the truth and love. We just pray, God, that you would be with Ellen as she goes on to the next steps for these next books she's working on, that you would just equip her with um, with everything she needs to do these things with the wisdom, with the creativity, with the time, and just as these opportunities progress, Lord, that you would just help her to glorify you in every way 
We pray that you would place people around her um, where she needs them, when she needs them to help her um, in some of these large tasks that are maybe seem daunting. Um, we pray for joy. We just pray that you would just give her joy as she walks in the purposes that you've planned for her. We pray for continued healing from her loss, the loss of her husband, and just that you would help her to walk in confidence that that you're with her, that you're directing her, that you're guiding her, and that you have amazing plans for her. And uh, we just pray every blessing on her and her home in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of the Praying Christian Women podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a comment to let us know what questions or topics we can address in future shows. Then hop over to prayingchristianwomen.com journal to download your free prayer guide. We're so glad you joined us for today's show, and we wish you God's deepest blessings as you draw closer to Him and change the world one prayer at a time.